The reading is especially long today, so I'll ask you to be seated and get comfortable. Not too comfortable. Our text is Ecclesiastes. We're starting a series. I don't really know how long it will be. I assume eight or nine weeks, but we'll see. So our text today is Ecclesiastes 1, starting at verse 1, 1, 1. We'll read almost to the end of chapter 2. We'll stop at verse 23. Let's hear God's word. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What profit has a man from all his labor in which he toils under the sun? One generation passes away and another generation comes, but the earth abides forever. The sun also rises, and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it arose. The wind goes toward the south and turns around to the north. The wind whirls about continually and comes again on its circuit. All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place from which the rivers come, there they return again. All things are full of labor. Man cannot express it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. That which has been is what will be. That which is done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which it may be said, see, this is new? It has already been in ancient times before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of things that are to come by those who will come after I, the preacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I set my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all that is done under heaven, this burdensome task God has given to the sons of man by which they may be exercised. I have seen all the works that are done under the sun, and indeed all is vanity and grasping for the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be numbered. I communed with my heart, saying, Look, I have attained greatness and have gained more wisdom than all who were before me in Jerusalem. My heart has understood great wisdom and knowledge, and I set my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is grasping for the wind. For in much wisdom is much grief, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. I said in my heart, Come now, I will test you with mirth. Therefore, enjoy pleasure. But surely this also is vanity. I said of laughter, madness, and of mirth, what does it accomplish? I searched in my heart how to gratify my flesh with wine while guiding my heart with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the sons of men to do under heaven all the days of their lives. I made my works great. I built myself houses and planted myself vineyards. I made myself gardens and orchards, and I planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made myself water pools from which to water the growing trees of the grove. I acquired male and female servants and had servants born in my house. Yes, I had greater possessions of herds and flocks than all who were in Jerusalem before me. I also gathered for myself silver and gold, and the special treasures of kings and of the provinces. 
I acquired male and female singers, the delights of the sons of men, and musical instruments of all kinds. So I became great and excelled more than all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this was my reward from all my labor. Then I looked on all the works that my hands had done, and on the labor in which I had toiled, and indeed all was vanity and grasping for the wind. There was no profit under the sun. Then I turned myself to consider wisdom and madness and folly, for what can the man do who succeeds the king? Only what he has already done. Then I saw that wisdom excels folly as light excels darkness. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. Yet I myself perceived that the same event happens to them all. So I said in my heart, as it happens to the fool, it also happens to me. And why was I then more wise? Then I said in my heart, this also is vanity. For there is no more remembrance of the wise than of the fool forever since all that now is will be forgotten in the days to come. And how does a wise man die as the fool? Therefore, I hated life, because the work that was done under the sun was distressing to me, for all is vanity and grasping for the wind. Then I hated all my labor in which I had toiled under the sun, because I must leave it to the man who will come after me, and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet, He will rule over all my labor in which I toiled and in which I have shown myself wise under the sun. This also is vanity. Therefore, I turned my heart and despaired of all the labor in which I had toiled under the sun. For there is a man whose labor is with wisdom, knowledge, and skill. Yet he must leave his heritage to a man who has not labored for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. For what has man for all his labor, and for the striving of his heart, with which he has toiled under the sun? For all his days are sorrowful, and his work burdensome. Even in the night his heart takes no rest. This also is vanity. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is not vanity, is not meaningless. And so we pray, Lord, that you would open our minds, uh, awaken us to see what it is that Solomon lived, and Lord, please uh, awaken us to not live lives of vanity. We ask you to open our eyes now, Lord, as we come into your presence. In Christ's name, amen. Now that's an awful lot of depressing stuff, I think. And... I could probably stop there, and that would pretty much suffice uh, 80 or 90 percent of the commentaries on Ecclesiastes. And yet, we know there's a lot more here in God's Word than what most liberal commentators on His Word want to see. Solomon wrote how many books of the Bible? Three books. They're all in a series right here. This is the middle one. We've got Proverbs. Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, or Song of Solomon. And so you ask, what is the purpose 
of each of these books that Solomon has written. You look at Songs of uh, Solomon, for instance, and Song of Solomon is very interesting. It's very unique. It's probably one of the least read books in Scripture, if you maybe exclude some of the minor prophets that people never get to. But it is a book that I believe makes people a little uncomfortable because it is so graphic in terms of this man and woman in relations. And so the purpose of the Song of Solomon, you might be a little unclear on, but the content, I think, makes it very clear. It's about a man and a woman in love. It's about that relationship, that dance that occurs with a man and a woman in love. And so I think the Song of Solomon is fairly clear in its intent. You might discuss its merits on whether it is uh, to be a metaphor applied to Christ and his church. And so some say it is, some say it isn't. But its meaning is overall very clear. It's not that confusing of a book, although it does use a lot of Old English, like, you know, the, the woman's teeth being like a flock of goats. That's, you know, a little inappropriate, I think, to our age. But Proverbs, another book written by Solomon. What's the purpose of the book of Proverbs? I think when you read Proverbs, you get it. You might not understand and apply all those things. You might not remember them when the time is right to apply them. But yet, oftentimes, as you're reading Proverbs, you think, aha. It just pops into your head. It's like, oh, now I know what that means. Now I see it in my life. Now I see what I should have done last week. So see, that's what Proverbs is. That's about worldly wisdom, spiritual, worldly wisdom. And when I was a young Christian, I would read Proverbs, and then you just roll right into Ecclesiastes. And there are aspects of Ecclesiastes that remind you of Proverbs, and so you're tempted to view it as an extension of Proverbs. But it doesn't leave you feeling the same. Ecclesiastes is fundamentally different. And so many people don't really know how to approach Ecclesiastes. They don't know what value it is to them. I believe many of us sense that it is profound, yet we're frustrated by the ability to really apply it to our lives, to understand what exactly is being said. Let me, I think, simplify it vastly for you in this lecture. I really hope that after this is over, you'll have a fundamentally different view of Ecclesiastes if you had one before. I believe in Ecclesiastes, Solomon dares to ask the question, why? The question that all of us ask at points in our lives, why does man exist? What is the purpose of man? And to make it even more personal, why do I exist? What is my purpose? There's a huge difference between those different ways of looking at it. What does, why does man exist? That's theoretical. What is man's purpose? That's somewhat philosophical. Why do I exist? That's very practical. What am I supposed to do? Again, very down to earth, very meaningful to me personally. We could argue about the purpose of mankind till the cows come home, and it doesn't affect us. But when you personalize it, it affects you greatly. When I was a teenager, a young teenager, I wrestled with this question, why? I was in an unbelieving home. 
We had a Bible on the shelf, but I seldom took it down. No one did. I mean, who needs to refer to that? And yet, I asked this question, especially because, as many of you know, when I was 13, my younger sister died. She was 11. She died of cancer. And so here I am, 13, and I'm faced with having to integrate the death of my sister into my world and life view. At 13, as an unbeliever, you don't have much of a world and life view. I didn't. And I was a reader. I mean, even at that point, I read a lot. And yet, it was not easy to integrate the death of my sister into my world and life view. It just didn't make any sense. I reflected on it from her perspective. Why had she lived? Why did she die? I reflected on it from my perspective. What if I was in her shoes? How does this affect me now that I've been the one that has lived through this and see her die? And so I regarded this as my little secret. I mean, I was 13, 14 years old. Who can I talk to about stuff like this? This is profound. My parents would never talk to me about stuff like this. Nobody would. So who do you talk to about questions like that when you're so young and you're so confused? I didn't talk to anybody. I would just write poems. That's when I discovered poetry can be helpful to express this screwed up head of mine, what was in it and what I couldn't figure out. I thought it was wrong to ask other people about that, actually. I felt in part it would be arrogant of me to ask that question of my elders because obviously they know. I should know. I mean, that's kind of how we figure everything out, isn't it? We don't go ask people. We just watch them. What are they doing? Oh, well, that's, what's life. that's what life's about. Yeah, must be about that. Must be about getting up, getting dressed, going to work, coming home, watching TV, going to bed. That's life in a nutshell, isn't it? That explains everything, doesn't it? Sadly, no, not for me. I was very confused. Why would it be any different now? Why, would it, why wouldn't I die now when I'm 13 as opposed to 11 or 9 or 78? It just didn't make any sense. The first question of the Shorter Catechism reads what? What is the chief end of man? Catechisms all ask questions. And so in the Shorter Catechism, we have, a, what, 107 questions that are asked of us. And the very first question is, what is the chief end of man? Now, I don't mean to be disrespectful of our posterity, our Presbyterian posterity, but I think they could have done better. That could have said, why does man exist? That's really what it means, isn't it? What is the chief end of man? That's a weird way of saying, why does man exist? I think we should change it. In the PCA, it would take a three-quarter vote of all the presbyteries. We're not in the PCA anymore. I don't know what it would take in the CPC. We'll try it. But so see, that is the question that is being asked. And what is the answer? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. I think that can be improved upon. Man exists to please God and to enjoy him forever. Now, I don't have anything against glorify. I think it's a great word. I just think the bulk of us don't really get it. It's just too nebulous. If I know that I exist to please God, that makes it a little more attainable. Now I know there's something perhaps I can do to please him. And there is. 
We know we can't earn eternal life, but we know we can please God through how we live. We know that. The Bible tells us that. The Bible is filled with illustrations of that. So, here in Omaha, I propose that we change the Shorter Catechism, question one and answer. So, let's, I'll, I'll basically get a petition going or something. Now, I found an online commentary for Ecclesiastes, and it's uh, actually pretty good. But what I found most interesting about it is the beginning. Its title is Ecclesiastes Through the Centuries. And it begins with just page after page of quotes about Ecclesiastes from, now, you might recognize some of the people, I might recognize some. The first one you'll recognize, Martin Luther, but the rest, uh, But let me give you a few quotes from this that I really liked. This is from Martin Luther. This was written in 1532. This book is one which no one has ever completely mastered. Indeed, it has been so distorted by the miserable commentaries of many writers that it is almost a bigger job to purify and defend the author from the notions which they have smuggled into him than it is to show his real meaning. This is from a man named Paul Hopt from 1894. And I love this one. This one's very graphic. Ecclesiastes reminds me of the remains of a daring explorer who has met with some terrible accident, leaving his shattered form exposed to the encroachments of all sorts of foul vermin. That is, I think, true. It's a very good illustration. When I would first read Ecclesiastes, I'm like, okay, there are parts missing. I, I just don't get it. I'd read the whole thing. And I'd think, wait a minute, I got lost. I got off track somewhere. I'd go back, I'd read the whole thing. Nope, same place. I'm puzzled. What does this really mean for me? And this guy nailed it with this illustration. Now, here's one by a man named E.J. Dillon, and he's a skeptic from 1895. He is an uncompromising pessimist who sees the world as it is. Everything that some pleasant or profitable is, or everything that seems pleasant or profitable is vanity and a grasping of wind. There is nothing positive but pain, nothing real but the eternal will, which is certainly unknowable and probably unconscious. These truths are the bitter fruits of that rare knowledge, the increase of which is the increase of sorrow. See, a lot of these people aren't getting much out of Ecclesiastes, kind of like me. This is from Gary Salyer. This is written in 2001. Inasmuch as it would be absurd to criticize a Rubik's Cube for the problems it presents to its user, so it is with the text of Ecclesiastes. The book of Ecclesi- Now, this is from Matthew Arnold in 1873. The book of Ecclesiastes has been called skeptical, epicurean. It is certainly without the glow and hope which animate the Bible in general. This same guy, six years later, said this in a speech. The book of Ecclesiastes is one of the wisest and one of the worst understood books in the Bible. Now, this is my favorite. You have to like this one. Guess the year. That's my, that's my game here. Guess the year this was written. He is a pathological doubter of everything, stemming from a drastic emotional experience, a psychic disturbance. He is doubtful about himself as a person of worth and character. He has no self-esteem or value of himself. His doubt has destroyed all values. He is an inferior of no account, and he demeans himself constantly. His doubts come from a parapathy, a disease of the mind which he shares with many neurotics. What do you think? What era? 
1973. Doesn't that just strike you as being true? 1973, written by a man named Frank Zimmerman in a book called The Inner World of Kohelet. Those are the only ones I want to share with you, but I wanted to just show you. And one thing I didn't realize when I started this, when I chose this topic, and I told Gary and Phil a couple months ago, is when I, when I chose it and then I started studying it, what I didn't realize is nobody preaches through Ecclesiastes. And you, you see why. It's very confusing. And see, the thing about preaching through a book, especially if you're not going to just skip things, is that you have to know exactly where to start and stop each sermon. And you're really supposed to address each verse. And it's just difficult to do because based on where you start and stop, you have different messages, different focuses, different emphases, totally different interpretations of the book. But you guys will love this. Just yesterday, I hadn't, I hadn't looked for any series because I just thought there weren't any. I, a summary search a while back just hadn't shown me anything obvious. Yesterday, I did a deeper search, and I found that Mark Driscoll of Mars Hill took six months to preach through this back in 2003. <laughs> Our hero, my hero. And there's another man that I really love. You probably haven't heard of him. He's from a church down in San Diego area by the name of Kaleo, and his name is David Fairfield, and he's preached through it as well. That was just a few years ago. And so I haven't had a chance to listen to these, obviously, or read through them, but they'll hopefully inform my mind in the next uh, 12 weeks or so as we knock these out. But I almost regret studying someone else's series on a book like this because I find myself thinking, oh, well, I don't know. I don't know about that. I don't know about that. I don't know if I can pull that off. There was one Baptist preacher. I read a couple of his sermons. I'm like, how does he do this? He's just so good at, at, at uh, telling the stories. But uh, so anyway, I just wanted to say that these guys did a good job, I'm sure. Mark Driscoll, love them. David Fairfield, love them. And so I'm curious to see how they viewed this whole thing. But so many commentaries, when you read them, say Solomon didn't write this book. Many, many, many of them do. And many conservative people anymore say he didn't write the book. And it all has to do with there being certain Persian words in this that couldn't possibly have existed when Solomon lived. So I think that's bunk. Solomon said he wrote it. It, it speaks of him very clearly as having written. He does say his name, but yet all of it points to Solomon. Now, most see Solomon as jaded and world-weary in this book. And I know this is an uphill battle for you, but I'm going to ask you to suspend that belief. I believe I can convince you otherwise. I know it's going to be hard, especially given some of what he says. I mean, what he says is really dark, and he's obviously bitter. I'm not saying he's not bitter at times, but I'm just saying that you have to look at it in context. I don't think bitterness conveys the essence of Ecclesiastes at all, and I hope to prove that to you. But, you know, he calls living the burdensome task in Ecclesiastes 1.13. He refers to himself as hating his life, hating his labors. So I'm not telling you that he doesn't have strong opinions and beliefs that were upturned by his study, but I believe you'll find it to be interesting. As a matter of fact, most would say when they get to like an Ecclesiastes 8.15 where we read this, so I commended enjoyment, because a man has nothing better under the sun than to eat, drink, and be merry, for this will remain with him in his labor all the days of his life, which God gives him under the sun. Most would regard that as 
the way the uh, Israelites responded to Isaiah in Isaiah 22, where he was sent to, to upbraid them for their sin and to correct their behavior. And what did they do? They partied. They thought, hey, if the end is coming, let's at least have one great final fling. That, I believe, is what most people would view uh, Solomon as saying in, in 8.15, and I don't believe that's true at all. It just colors all of your thinking when you see some of the strong, critical, condemnatory comments he makes and then say, oh, the whole book's like that. So I just ask you to suspend that belief and hear me out as we preach through this thing. Now, I talked at the beginning about the purpose of Ecclesiastes, and it's that question, why, why, why? That's the reason. Now I want to cover the usefulness of Ecclesiastes. Uh, It is and has always been among my favorite books of the Bible. Even when I couldn't understand it that much, I liked it better than Proverbs, even though I got so little out of it back then. I could get a lot out of Proverbs, but I would get very little out of Ecclesiastes. But I knew, I knew it had value, significant value that I could not yet perceive. And so you keep whittling away at it. You keep hammering away at it. And eventually, you get tired. And so you just leave it alone for large stretches of your life. And then you come back to it. And you start whacking away at it again. I believe Ecclesiastes can ground you as a Christian in ways that few other books of the Bible can. It will repeatedly repeatedly rip away at anything else on this earth that you value more than God. It'll rip possessions out from under you. It will rip reputation out from under you. Anything you set your heart on on this earth, it will rip away. And that is what Solomon wanted to do. That's the purpose of Ecclesiastes. We must have anything like that that we would otherwise put our faith in ripped away from us such that we have only God left, such that we rely only on God. Just like Gary was saying, faith alone, through Christ alone, the glory of God alone, all those solas. There is, I believe, a one-sentence summary of the book of Ecclesiastes that I intend to prove over the next few weeks, and it is this. A man's got to know his limitations. That is the purpose of Ecclesiastes. That's the usefulness of it. And if you don't recognize that line, it's from that famous Western in which Clint Eastwood is a gunslinger. You know, that one. (laughs) Ecclesiastes consists of two parts. One part is the first whole half of the book. The second part is the whole second half of the book. Right in the middle is this verse. And if you would, turn with me to it. It's in Ephesians 6. In Ephesians 6, verse 10, we read this. Whatever one is, he has been named already, for it is known that he is man, and he cannot contend with him who is mightier than he. He is man, and he cannot contend with him who is mightier than he. That is the central verse of Ecclesiastes. It's the central meaning of Ecclesiastes. Remember it. Highlight it. The whole book is like this, leading up to that verse. It explains the whole book in one sentence. He cannot contend with him who is mightier than he. 
man has two limitations. The first half of the book covers one. The second half of the book covers another. The first limitation that Solomon addresses is that man is limited in his abilities. Man is limited in what he can accomplish. The whole second half of the book, man is limited in his knowledge. He is limited in his foresight, what he can foresee. The whole book is about you recognizing the limits God has placed upon you and accepting them. Now, I've done a lot of talking, but I haven't talked about my text, and I have 41 verses to get through. How on earth am I going to get through all that? Okay, very quickly, obviously. So let's go to verse 2 in chapter 1. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. This famous phrase, vanity of vanities, starts a 10-verse poem here in chapter 1. We have it running from verse 2 through verse 11. That's why you see it if you're looking at it in the New King James in where each uh, verse number appears there. And then you go into paragraph form later. The same words are present in chapter 12 and ends another poem. From 12, 1 to 8, we have another poem that ends in these same words. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. There is this parallelism in Ecclesiastes. You have it start the same. You have a poem and a, and a, and a statement, and then you have a poem and a statement. And in each of these, we have the statement that is explaining the content of the poem. The first section here in verses 12 through 18 explains. Now, this is not an introductory poem. This poem is a conclusion. This poem concludes the results of his experiment that he conducts. And that's what he's describing. That's the whole purpose. He starts with the end. He starts with the results of his experiment. The second one gives the lessons learned. Based on the failure of the experiment, based on what he's learned in the experiment, this is what he's really learned. It's beautiful. It's just got this beautiful symmetry to it. 